So there is a question that I have been pondering for many years, ever since I became acquainted with your work. And I'm sure that a lot of people are wondering the same. How did you come to be called Joe Fish? So I finished uh, high school early and then I spent a year traveling around the world with a backpack. And at some point I was down in New Zealand and a friend said, I'm going to get a tattoo. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to get a tattoo as well. I want to get a little smiley fish with three air bubbles. So I have a little smiley fish with three air bubbles on my right thigh that I got when I was 17 or something. And um, uh, basically ever since then, so somebody was like, oh, well, it's the Joe Fish. And so everyone called me Joe Fish. And when I went off to undergrad, right, which is a lovely time to sort of reinvent yourself a little bit and, you know, decide who you want to be. And I was like, oh, my name's Joe Fish. And everyone called me Joe Fish. So basically everyone who met me from whatever it was, age 17 onwards, calls me Joe Fish. And everyone who met me before that calls me Joseph, right? My parents don't call me Joe Fish, right? But, um, That's really interesting because you like you sign your papers as joe fish your academic work has yep. you as joe fish okay well and as time went on i think i got uh more comfortable just deciding that that was the, the identity i wanted to go with so i think if you look back at some of the earlier ones it's sort of like joseph joe fish k and then over time i was like look let's just make life easier and there's been some nice times when people have done things like met other people because that you know someone said we should get this for joe fish and someone turns around and says wait do you know joe fish um and there's something lovely about that right like it's a very convenient having a unique string or quasi unique right yeah exactly i mean my name is mehmet and mehmet is the most common name in the turkish language so actually uh in in turkey no one calls me mehmet my friends call me baytash which is my last name uh but in 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 Scandinavia and in, in sort of like the English speaking communities that we frequent, Mehmet is quite unique, so it, it works. Uh, but on the topic of names, uh, so your website says that you're a scientist who takes a strategic research approach to innovation and product decisions. And uh, for many years, I can see that scientist has been your actual job title. So very few people in this field, in the field of uh, user experience design, human-computer interaction, product design, very few people call themselves a scientist. What does this mean to you? What is the meaning of science and scientist to you? And why do you choose this title? It's a good question. I mean, let's acknowledge that all these things are, are framings, right? They're ways to tell stories about people that suggest that uh, for some reason you're a good fit, right? So. Um, when I'm talking to people about how you get jobs, right, the key thing is you want to solve problems that people have. And framing myself as a scientist was a way that was a useful thing to do. I mean, I think it does talk to sort of a certain core identity that I have. Um, I think I'm pretty critical about the value of science, right? Like I, I, I'm too, I have too much of that science and technology studies sort of, you know, let's talk about the social construction of of science and scientists, right, to sort of um, necessarily believe it as a label wholesale. But I think partly I was in a situation in which the scientist was a valid job title and a valid way to, to articulate the value that I could bring to an organization. Oh, we want to bring in this scientist to do things. I think there's another thing there in that um, the softer sides of uh, user research, right? Like the you know qualitative interviewing, um, those kind of approaches are undervalued by uh, people who've been trained in classical computer science a lot of the times, right? Um, we're seeing this change over time, but wow, are we not really good at this as a discipline still? And so partly as saying, 
framing what I'm doing as science is a way to say to those people like, no, no, this is a perfectly valid scientific discipline that produces valid knowledge in the world. Um, uh, so is yours. I'm not saying that yours is not, whatever that is. But like, let's 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 acknowledge that this is a uh, I don't know an epistemologically valid approach to generating knowledge. Right? Is sort of uh, so that's sort of where the scientist comes from. Um, it's also within large corporations. It's one of the sort of categories that people are increasingly recognizing as sort of a valid track. Right? We have software engineers. Um, you have program managers, project managers, you have um, uh, site reliability engineers, right? Like these are sort of categories that exist that then have things like um, job frameworks, right? The sort of people understand, ah, this is what this person does at this level kind of thing. Um, and we're starting to see that for some places that was the case for scientists, for researchers, Um and it's a way to sort of be part of that conversation. The other thing that it does is sort of frame this as being an, an IC, right? An individual uh, contributor kind of approach. So this is one of these things that academics don't always um, grok about most industry situations in that the two core divisions in industry is you're either an individual contributor or you're a manager, right? Um, and those are never as pure as they're claimed to be, but this idea that you're either an, an IC or a manager track um, and you can usually swap back and forth between those two tracks, right? And it's not really about, um, you know, pay, right? You might pay someone who is an IC and a manager at the same level, exactly the same, but they have different responsibilities, right? And in particular, the IC is sort of responsible for doing the work themselves and the manager is themselves, is, is, or the manager or the director, whatever it ends up being at different levels, is responsible for doing it through the people that they manage, right? And so those are two different ways of, crea again, creating value in the world. You touched on some very interesting concepts. I would like to return to some of them. Uh, but before I want to dig into some of the other words that I've seen before on your CV, one of them was understanding users, which seems to be a priority uh, in your work. And you've, you've spoken about also uh, epistemology, which is an interesting term that I want to unpack later. But, but first, I want to get to like, I guess we could call it methodology. Uh, like, do you have any favorite approaches, favorite research methods for uh, this understanding users that is very important for you? Let's talk about methods, right? Like, um, um, I, I think we teach graduate students methods because it's a valuable way to communicate what it is people are expected to do and people we want people to do. Uh, one of the things that I find is when you sort of actually get out in the world and start creating things, the methods are a lot less like, like, like set in stone as they appear when you're sort of teaching them. When you're teaching me like, oh, well, you do this and then this and then this. I think as time goes on, I become much more um, agnostic about the roles of some particular method to do some particular thing. I am generally and increasingly in favor of being able to use multiple methods to triangulate into some fundamental understanding of a thing, right? I love to, do, to be in a situation which you can say, you do a bunch of interviews, right? Like something that is sort of qualitative work, you go and talk to people and just get a core understanding of things. And then you do maybe some survey work, right? So your interviews N equals N, 10, right? Maybe N equals 15, maybe N equals five. It doesn't really matter, right? Then you might be doing some survey work and there your N might be higher than that, right? Maybe it's 100, maybe it's 1,000. 
Um, there's not much point in going above a thousand. Like sometimes people do sort of a few thousand, but it's you you sort of max out your levels of understanding. Call it a thousand people, right? But it's surveys, right? You're going to get they're pretty cheap to administer, but you get sort of a limited understanding of what people are doing. But you can ask them real questions. And then I would put the big data layer, right, where you're looking at log data, you're looking at uh, large aggregates of data, and you're putting those together. Um, maybe you're doing um, sort of patterns of what people are actually clicking on on a website, right? Maybe you're looking at um, traces of how people are, under, are reacting to advertising, whatever the sort of specific thing. In, in the domain, medical domain that I'm in, we're looking at a lot of things around patient records, right? Um, what what medications are you taking? Uh, what medications are large numbers of people taking? What, uh, uh, what diagnoses are we getting sort of into the system? And that idea that as you have those three different levels of understanding, if you can triangulate across those three and say, well, it really does look like this is the pattern that we're seeing, right? We have this understanding. Um, and you want to sort of jump back and forth between those levels, right? Maybe maybe you do the survey first because you just get bored on a Wednesday afternoon. You're like, I wonder what, what people think about this. And so you put together a quick survey and you slap it on Reddit, right? And you get 150 answers and you throw away 50 of them because they're just junk. Um, but you, you, you get an inkling of something that's interesting. So then you go and look at the log, log data and you're like, yeah, that pattern is showing up. So then you go and talk to the, the, some people and get a sense for this. And this idea that you want to go back and forth and challenge yourself with the ways that you created knowledge to make sure that you can validate those ways. Because often people are not familiar with all three levels, right? Like most people uh, might understand two of those three levels, often only understand one. And so partly it's communicating to people who only start understand one of those levels, right? How do you create a story in the world about the information that you want to do so that people can make the decisions they need? So I think that's how I feel about methods, right? They're useful for persuading people uh, of various things. And partly your job becomes to, to figure out how you knit those together to tell the story you need to tell. I was half expecting that you would uh, at least mention uh, ethno-methodology uh, because uh, I, I know this is kind of random, but I, I read the paper that you wrote about ethnomethodology, and it was extremely entertaining. It was the ones, the, one of the most entertaining research papers that I've ever read. Uh, but you are talking about a whole different class of methods. Uh, is well, this so let's let's talk about ethnomethodology for a minute. I'm going to sort of mm -hmm. indulge myself. I should set a time <laughs> of five minutes, right? Because you know, um, ethnomethodology, the, the like. Garfinkel's insight with ethnomethodology was to say, look, let's try and understand how people make sense of the world, right? These things that we just accept as categories in the world, like data science or, um, or interviews, right? Um, let's go and look at how people create those, those social facts. How do they make sense of them, right? And what I think is sort of fascinating is you look at the history of sociology, it came out about the same time as grounded theory came out, right? Like, like in terms of sort of a, a movement in sociology. Um, and both of them are about, look, let's not have these a priori assumptions about the, the way the world is organized. Let's go to the people who are the experts, right? The end users, whoever it is we're looking at, and let's understand how they make sense of the world. What I love about um, all three of those systems, it's hardest in the survey work, but uh, you can try and go into them with this sense of like, what if we don't know how the world is organized, right? Um, 
What if we say, let's try and understand how the users that we have, how do they make sense of the world, right? And I think that's, that's how I apply the ethnomethodological assumptions about, about things. It's a, for all of the complicatedness of it as an area, it's a quite humble approach in that it doesn't assume you know what's going on, right? Like the great thing about ethnomethodology is you can go and be like, well, I don't understand this. What's important to me is how do the people who I'm looking at, how do they understand things, right? And I think that's the, the great power of ethnomethodology, which to be fair has sort of been lost and obscured through, um, I don't know how much ethnomethodology you've read. Um, there's a lot of very, very long words in it. I mean, starting <laughs> with ethnomethodology. Right? <laughs> True. And uh, for for the benefit of our audience, I will include some links and uh, and, and various other resources to, uh, to to some of the terms that you've just said. I, I will include a link to Garfinkel, and so they can click on it and go and see who that is. Uh, but this is this is interesting because I've heard you speak on another podcast, uh, and you were talking about epistemological assumptions and today also you mentioned epistemology and you were saying how important it is for you to have uh, people around you that you work with who share your uh, epistemological assumptions is this the same thing as uh, this this concept that you you've now spoken about which is how people see the world and how people see uh, how, how people's mental models of the world i guess ensue let, let, let's talk about that because it's, it's super good area to dive into. I'm kind of letting myself talk about epistemology on this podcast when I because I try not to do it at work because it's it's a scary word and most people don't know what it means and then they're like he's using a word I don't know what it means and this is scary and I'm I'm too like you know I don't want to ask and and show what I and show that I don't know what this long word means. I think of epistemology being like how do you define what is knowledge, right? Like what counts as valid knowledge in the world, right? Like that's the question we're trying to answer. Um, and that sort of phrase like that, it seems very abstract, but I think most people are, they have assumptions about this. They've just never sort of articulated them that way, right? So it may be a good piece of knowledge, a good study will have a large N, right? Like, well, if you've got 100 people, it's a good study. If you've got 30 people, it's not good. And you're like, oh, well, that's sort of like one of these features of quality in the world. So that's a good example. It may be that uh, you um, you spend a bunch of time with these people, and so you can use all of the words they use in a way that, that suggests you have familiarity with the underlying concepts, right? So you can talk about HbA1c if you're talking to um, doctors about diabetes, right? You, ha you have sort of the terms of the art locally. And so I think a lot of people have these assumptions about epistemology. They just don't think of them as being epistemology. They think of them as just being good or bad uh, knowledge, right? Good or bad studies. And I think where the difficulty comes is that most people are only familiar with one kind of of study, right? So if you're a big data person and you're like, well, is your data big enough? That's the question. And then someone comes in and says, well, I did this, I did 10 interviews. Then they're like, N equals 10. That's laughable, right? Like, like I'm not even going to listen, right? And you're like, yeah, but that's because you're applying the wrong epistemological standards, the wrong standards of what is good knowledge um, to a different form of, of, of creating knowledge in the world, right? And so I find a lot of the work I end up doing is sort of almost translating work, right? Someone says, 
uh, well, I did this and someone else is like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. And you're like, ah, but this is the right thing. This is the way to make this. And did you notice how it backs up your result down here, right? One of the ways that I like to, uh, or, or that I find very, uh, I guess, effective in terms of sharing these kinds of assumptions or these kinds of have, creating this like shared ground with people that I work with is uh, books naturally. I mean, books have been a very, it's, they're an ancient technology now, which we've used for this purpose. And they're still one of the best technologies in my opinion. Uh, and so I recommend a lot of books to my colleagues and I sort of find it easy to work with people with whom we have read the same books. Are there any uh, books that you recommend very frequently to your colleagues uh not necessarily only about methods and so on but any anything i would say i think it depends a lot on what i'm currently working on and what is the stuff that i think they need to understand sometimes it is um recently i've been doing a lot of work around how do you present good information to doctors right how do you show doctors that the uh the research that you're proposing is good and it, it again is sort of valid, epistemologically valid. Um, and so I've been handing people um, Thomas Kuhn's, right, uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It suffers a little bit from like, wow, is it obscure, right? Like, it's hard to read. It's, it's a sort of book that you read in grad school, but you hand it to someone who's not in grad school, and they're like, what is this? And it's, they're also, books suffer from being long, right? Like, and we've all read books in which you're like, ah, oh, this could have been a paper, right? This is a good book, but wow, I got the gist of it, yet didn't need to keep kind of hammering it in, right? So sometimes I'm looking for papers that give, that give them the essence of the book. Um, but even then, the academic paper is such a, we forget how weird they are, right? Like, they're such strange structured beasts. And like, you know, by now, you know, you've written your share of papers, you've read hundreds of papers and you're like, oh, this is normal. And then you talk to someone who's, you know, maybe got a bachelor's degree and who's been in industry their whole career. And they're like, they just can't make head or tail of it, right? It's like, they're not used to the story form of a scientific paper. Um, and even that's like different in different disciplines, right? Um, in HCI, we do the intro, intro and then we do the related work. Right. So we sort of like, we're like this, here's all the background. This is what we did. This is what we found. And this is what we think the conclusion is. Um, in a lot of other disciplines, the related work comes at the end, right? They tell you what they did right up. They're like, well, we did this thing. This is what we found. And by the way, here's some other stuff. And it's almost jarring because you're like, oh, wait, but, but, but where's the relate? Oh, there it is over at the end. Right. And there's no particular reason that the story needs to be structured in one way or another. Right. I tell my students that academic papers are a genre of literature and they have like subgenres also, you know, every, every academic field has its own kind of genre and uh, every genre is good for different things. You know, there are certain kinds of stories and certain words that you use for science fiction, uh, others for fantasy, others for philosophical things and academic papers are one such kind of literature or a kind of like a uh, way of recording knowledge and there are others and they're all kind of good for different things and you know the kind of conversation that we're having the reason that i'm i started this project and started recording conversations like this was that this is an amazing format for certain kinds of knowledge or information or or just things uh, a, a youtube video is a, a great format for certain kinds of information i've learned actually 
I would say the fundamentals of my profession uh, from YouTube. Scott Klemmer has an amazing uh, HCI course that he recorded for Coursera, and you can find it also on YouTube. I think that's that's the basis of my entire professional knowledge. That's how I started. So uh, each each kind of representation is good for for different things. And on that note, I would like to bring the conversation back to track, I guess, um, because I wanted to ask you about. Uh, these representations, and you did mention talking to doctors. Uh, so when I speak to uh, my friends and acquaintances in the industry who are uh, to various degrees involved with UX design and research, especially, one of the most frequent complaints that they have is that the, the managers or the decision makers kind of don't don't factor in the research or the uh, information that they bring and they just make their decisions based on other things and the, the I guess the users or the, the relevant stakeholders suffer in the end. What, what are your favorite ways of sharing your results? What are some representations, some uh, deliverables, I guess, even that you like to provide in your work to people? Again, I like multiple methods because different people accumulate knowledge in different ways, right? Um, my boss right now has been in the film industry for uh, the film and entertainment industry. He was in computer games for a lot. He was in film for a lot. Um, he loves video. He loves watching things on video, right? Like for him, that's a really valuable way to do things. Um, I don't really like video very much for sort of conveying information. I mean, I, I like watching stuff, right? But for conveying information, I don't find it particularly useful for me. Um, but often I'll try and put things in different forms, right? And I, I, will, I will put, there are three, within the corporation, there are often three canonical forms, right? One is the document, right? Like, like you do the word document. Um, Amazon is very fond of these. Different companies have, have different um, emphases on these. Microsoft has a really good track record of sort of really doing this, even down to the sort of writing books level, right? Um, uh, but it's sort of the written document. Um, the second thing is sort of the, the PowerPoint presentation or Google Slides or whatever you're using. And it gets kind of poo-pooed, particularly in academia, where I think people don't really understand the role that it plays in uh, industry. Because the core thing is that in academia, it's treated as a an adjunct to, the, to where the information lives, right? It's just a tool, and then you go up and you give the talk. I don't know whether you've been to any talks in like, history departments where I've literally seen people go up and, and clutch some pieces of paper and then proceed to read every line off the piece of paper. And I was actually shocked the first time I saw this happen. I was like, oh my God, this is weird, right? But this is in, in the history department. This was, um, this was a perfectly normal way to do things. And I was like, oh yeah, this is fascinating. Um, but in industry, the PowerPoint deck is often a place in, it's not just a support for explaining the information, but it's also the place that the data can end up living, right? So mm -hmm. you might have an appendix that has a whole bunch of data in, right? That you might have, that, that might have, you know, a slide for everyone you interviewed, say, and it might sort of, it might have, you know, live, live in some folders somewhere else as well, but in the document that gets passed around the company, right, that becomes intellectual currency, that people use to pass around, um, that PowerPoint deck is where that information lives. And one of the things that I've always pushed on, if you get a designer in the team, you've got one designer in the team, they're like, you know, I should build a new template so that our, because our, our current decks look really not very good. I should build this beautiful new template. Um, and I always feel that the right thing is like, no, don't let them do that, right? 
you want people to use the standard company deck, whatever the absolute standard one that everyone else is using, because success is when people steal your slides, right? I mean, you leave your, you put your name down the bottom of the slide, right? Like you put your, you build the slides so that it's easy for people to steal them. And one of the ways you make it easy for them to steal them is make it look like everyone else's slides so that they can just pull your slide in and say, as our research team told us, whatever, you know, doctors hate filling out forms or, you know, nurses feel undervalued, right? And they can just pull your whole slide in um, and then have that. So the third thing that I would say, the third form, the document, the the deck, um, and that's the video, right? Being able to pull out those those snippets of video is super useful. Being able to just say, ah, oh, this thing here, click on this, will you? Um, they, because that's what I love. I love short, very short snippets of video, right? You were talking about how um, in academia, um, Scott Clemmer's work on on YouTube, right? Um, if you look at sort of things that Casey Feastler is doing on TikTok right now, she's doing a wonderful outreach work. And she's really taking this medium and in which there's not a lot of HCI representation. There's not a lot of information school representation. And she's really doing super work there using that medium to reach a whole new audience. Um, and I think that idea of saying, well, okay, what, uh, what are the different forms of media that I can use to communicate in different ways? Um, and I think it's okay, you know, I recognize that I am, I have my assumptions about what the ones are that I like to consume, but if I'm trying to influence people, I want to provide those multiple documents altogether, right? And those different forms of representing the information. Um, so some people will look at it and they'd be like, ah, go watch this, you know, go watch this video. Or some people might print out the whole um, written document and say, this, you know, pages 39 to 42, those are really good. That's the really useful stuff, right? Um, but you sort of want to let people go to wherever they need to be so that they listen to you, to you in hope, uh, we hope. I was going to say that, uh, you know, these, uh, the, these tactical design skills, like graphic design, typography, video making, uh, sort of hands-on visual stuff. I really, really enjoy those things. I enjoy doing them. I enjoy looking at them. And I was going to say that. Uh, I kind of believe that they should be taught more widely to everyone. Uh, but then you said, don't do it. Just use the company deck, whatever whatever uh, sort of is, is going around it as the standard form in your organization. So in the absence of deploying that, that tactical design knowledge, what are some other competences, uh, skills, uh, such as in storytelling, uh, that we can deploy into communicating within those formats. I do think those tactical skills are hugely important. I just think you should take the the company deck format and then do whatever you do within that format, right? Like the people we're trying to hire right now are people who have those core information design skills, right? I'm looking for people who do have that basic, like, okay, I can scribble something on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper and be like, then it's got some lines and some things here, and then there's a picture here, and they can turn it into something that is that looks like an actual um, program. And in particular, that they can say, look, you had it arranged like this, but I think it'd be a lot better if we did it horizontally, because then we can do this, and then you can have these two that will fit together, and we can sort them up and down. And I'm like, oh, that's really good, right? So being able to be very uh, familiar with whatever set of tools it is, right? I don't care whether you're working in Figma or Sketch or InDesign or um, Adobe Suite, right? Whatever those are, 
I'm reasonably agnostic about those. Um, I try not to tell my designers what tools to use. I kind of want them to make the right decision there. But that idea that you, particularly as a junior person, you're coming in to solve someone's problem, right? You're coming in to fix something that people have a problem and they want to hire you because they have a problem. And so those, those core tactical skills, those core like get this stuff done and do it quickly are super important. And I'm a huge fan of teaching those. So I see that you have a new job uh, as director of UX and AI at Anthem. So congratulations, first of all. Uh, and then now I'm noticing your job title doesn't say scientist anymore. And it says that you're in charge of both UX and AI, which is extremely interesting. Would you like to tell us about this? Sure. Um, so I'm starting on Monday as, as, as senior director of, of um, ISD and, your, and, and AI. Um, the and AI is sort of, you know, I'm within an AI group um, is where that side comes from. Um, and really, I do a lot of, uh, I wrangle a UX team. Um, well, uh, I brought in Erica Poole, who's from the HDI community, um, and, she's, and she's the director of that team. Um, and uh, I'm building up the interaction design side as well. And really what we're working on is how do you take data from uh, patient medical records, right? So particularly insurance billing, right? So the way that it, uh, the in healthcare works in the United States uh, for a company like Anthem is uh, you go and let's say you go and get a cholesterol test, right? Um, because you have health insurance, we see that you got a cholesterol test and we pay for the cholesterol test. Um, we also get some information like, ah, this is their HDL, this is their LDL. We get the results. And that's a kind of anti-fraud measure, right? So it's not just people like, yeah, we we definitely gave Baitash a, a cholesterol test. Yeah, don't worry about it, man, right? You know, like, like, like it's, it's like, okay, um, here's the data. So we have that data. We understand, um, we know what drugs you're being prescribed. Ah, you've got high cholesterol. Here's this statin, right? So again, like we see that. Um, so we see the diagnosis of, ah, uh, you have hyperlipidemia, you have, um, and we see that you've been prescribed, I don't know, Crestor or whatever the statin is, statin is, right? So out of that, we can see what the effects are and we can do some interesting data science, right? Let's say that you get given whatever statin it is, um, and uh, uh, three months later, you come back, you get another cholesterol test, and we're like, oh, look, your cholesterol went down. So we're able to say, ah, for someone like this, right, someone of this age with this other, these set of other um, diseases, this seems to be pretty effective. And we can guess, well, okay, we can guess, we can estimate this is likely what their cholesterol will do on being on this drug. And then we can take some other people who have taken some other drugs, right, who have taken some other uh, drugs to address cholesterol. And we can um, say, okay, it looks like for people like this, this is going to be the best drug, right? And that we can build off that enormous amount of data to do that. So that's a great, it's a pretty exciting thing to be doing. But the thing that's tricky is that doctors have been trained for, I don't know, the last 50 years, 100 years maybe, that the clinical trial is sort of the gold standard, right? The problem with clinical trials is they don't necessarily represent the diversity of the overall population. You're doing a clinical trial and you have pretty small N, right? Like it'll really be like maybe a hundred or so, something like that, a um, couple of hundred perhaps. And it depends on the trial, there's, there's lots of math around this. Chances are you don't want people who are 
have uh, multiple comorbidities, right? If you're testing a new cholesterol drug, you probably don't really want people who are already on drugs for diabetes and already on drugs for, um, I don't know, their chronic heart condition and their kidneys issues, right? Like someone who's got multiple conditions that have been controlled by multiple drugs, you don't want to add one more experimental drug into that, right? And so you don't, you may be able to prove, the, the clinical study will often show, great, this drug works very well for these people, but it doesn't necessarily generalize to the whole population. And with this kind of historical patient data that we're able to look at, we can make some really exciting recommendations and really be like, look, it really does look like here's this pattern that we're seeing for for people like, you know, for this patient, for people like that patient, this is what we can expect to happen. So there's a lot of UI. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of design that goes into this. There's a lot of data science, right? Like I'm very lucky to work with some very, very smart um, data scientists. My colleague, Bo Nodger is particularly, like I'm really impressed by the work that he and his team does. Um, but then the challenge is, okay, how do we get this in front of doctors? And how do we get them to think differently about the evidence that we presented? Because we can't necessarily give them a clinical trial. We might be able to for specific circumstances, and we're looking into this. But how do we get, how do we say, look, we've tested this. We haven't tested this, but the evidence from 5,000 people is this looks like this is the right approach that you might want to take on. And we don't want to usurp the doctor's um, decision-making, like that's not the aim. The aim is to sort of empower them to be even better and more uh, functioning at the top of their license is sort of the phrase we keep coming back to, right? How do you give doctors the tools they need that are really useful in the same way that, I don't know, if you didn't have a weighing scale, then you wouldn't know how much someone weighed. And so it'd be sort of hard to, for them to manage their weight if they didn't know how much they weighed, right? What are the tools you can give people um, as a doctor, to, to doctors, to clinicians, to nurses, to, to the, you know, the whole bunch of people involved in healthcare um, so that they're able to do what they do better. You have been also referring to uh, the community that we're in, which is human-computer interaction and interaction design research. And uh, you, you have a track record in this community as a researcher in computer science design, HCI. Uh, and it is, I would say, objectively excellent not only because of like your uh, your publications and citations that you've accumulated, but uh, also because of like the various institutions and people that appear on your resume in in various ways. They are all kind of names that we look up. You know, you've studied at MIT with Steven Pinker, Michael Hawley, Hiroshi Ishii. You've been at Cornell with Phoebe Sangers. I have uh, personally learned so much from these people just by studying what they publish, just what they write and, and put out there. What is the thing that you gain from having like personal physical access to these people and these places? As individuals, those all of those four people were influential in the work that I chose to do and how I've done it and things like that. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, and uh, these are people I like and respect and uh, and, and look up to. I don't always agree with everything that any of these people do, but like, but 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 fine, right? Um, I would say, if anything, the biggest um, thing you take away is these communities that are around those institutions, right? Those communities and those connections of uh, of people who are interested, who have a similar set of experiences, right? 
uh, I, you know, I think about my information science, the information science department at Cornell when, so it didn't exist when I went to do my PhD. Um, I went to Kai in 2003, having lost my job like a month or two before that. And I went to talk to Phoebe because I had met her when she was a graduate student at CMU and she was um, sort of doing the circuit and she'd come to talk at the media lab um, uh, as for a faculty position. Um, and we had talked a bit before that and uh, I ended up going to Cornell, but there was no Cornell information science to go for, to. I, I went to Kai and I just was like, everything I went to, there was the same group of people. There was Phoebe was there, um, Jeff Hancock, who at the time was at Cornell, um, was there. Kirsten Boehner was there, who was a graduate student. And I was like, wow, these people, I, like, I really like them and they keep being in the same place. Um, and so I went off to Cornell. I actually joined the science and technology studies department for the first year because there was no information science graduate department. Um, and then I switched into the information science graduate department as soon as it sort of existed after the first year. And so there were a handful of us there at the beginning, um, people like myself and Gilly Lushed, um, Sadat Shami, sort of all vaguely hanging out there. Um, and it, I mean, I love being in a new situation, right? Like I love being places where like, I don't know, there's maybe not that many rules, right? I suspect since I left, they put in a whole bunch of rules that are like, don't do it like Joe Fish ever again. Um, but I loved, the thing that the information science department to me did really well was they acknowledged the inherently interdisciplinary nature of, of creating knowledge in the world. Um, and so they said, okay, we're gonna treat information science as being a four part thing um, between computer science, cognitive science, um, HCI, which was sort of in the communication department at uh, Cornell and science and technology studies, right? And I think that that four part construction, I think they've changed a little bit how they're phrasing it right now, but the acknowledgement that you, you need to understand those disciplines. You need to be able to have uh, you need to be able to read a cognitive science paper and say, ah, oh, okay, this is how this contributes to the work I'm doing in HCI, right? Same in SDS, right? Like you want to be able to say, look at the SDS stuff. Okay, I'm going to go and do this work here. And so this idea of treating it as interdisciplinary from the very beginning was, I think, a really powerful thing. And for me, uh, that that core decision, I think, is probably the biggest single influence that I can point to. With With this kind of like track record, I'm sure you had a lot of, opportunities in academia but you have chosen to go and work for like companies nokia yahoo mozilla now anthem can you unpack this decision like what what did you expect when you went to work for corporations i think i originally was vaguely thinking i might spend a little bit of time in corporations and then go into academia right people present it as sort of a binary like is it one or the other right like it's you know you've there's only the two choices and um and I think the reality is a, is a little bit more complex than that, right? Um, you do see people who transition from one to the other. Um, you do see people who have ongoing relationships between the two, and I think that's great. One of the things I realized I missed was teaching, and so I found ways that I could go and do some teaching at Stanford. Uh, John Tung at Microsoft Research and I taught the uh, interaction design class at Stanford, and then we ended up doing it with a bunch of other people, which was good because the two of us were just a bit overwhelmed trying to do that on top of everything else. Uh, I can Obviously, I continue to do work with the academic community, and that's part of it. Um, one of the things I love about being in industry is you get fabulous problems, right? Great problems that can really influence how millions of people do things. Um, and your opportunity for impact through that, I think, is really, really significant. And I love that. 
Like I love those things in which you're like, I, I can really fix fundamental things um, for the world. I love the problems that you have and the opportunity to have impact there. And I love the data that you get, right? The sort of scale of data that you have access to. This goes back to that big data layer we were talking about. The scale of data that you have access to in industry um, is huge, right? You can get that data in, in academia and it's getting easier to get it and we're seeing more of it. Um, but it's still an interesting, um, it's hard, right? It's an interesting problem. How do you get that much data? How do you start to really do this kind of work uh, in the academy? You know, you can make a change and do an A-B test in the industry on, you know, the people coming to your company's webpage or something, if you're in a big company, right? Um, and I don't, I don't want to ignore that level of privilege inherent in being able to sort of frame these kind of things. The data is just fascinating, right? And it's so much fun to have that kind of uh, level of data and that level of engagement, right? So I've got to say, I love it. I really like being in industry. That being said, I love that I, I've had a consistent stream of super, super smart interns. At Mozilla, I was in a situation where I was actually able to fund a bunch of work in, in, in academia, and I loved that. Like, I thought that was a really great way to, to shape a field, right? To, to, to think seriously about where I wanted the field to go. I mean, you know, it's not just me. It was never just me. It was always in collaboration with a whole bunch of other people. But that idea that you could really think about what would be healthy practices for the field as a whole, right? So one of the things we did was to try and encourage people to do more open source work, right? I think HCI would be a lot better if we did open source code, open source data all over the place. Do I, I don't actually think it should be required, partly because I've spent this enough time in industry to be like, look, you can't, you can't do that. If you require open data for everything, you'll just knock out a huge amount of the vibrant industry work that's going on, right? Um, but should we encourage it? Yeah, absolutely, right? I'd love to see more things like that. And I think that's one of the things that I like best about HCI as a community is that we are quite so inclusive. We're quite so broad, right? The Kai conference is going on this week and you go and look at the stuff and there'll be someone who's building an iPad app for dogs to talk to each other across the internet. And then the next person is doing sort of fits law in 3D with virtual reality, right? Um, and then the next person is doing sort of a critical piece on assumptions around race as embodied in, um, uh, uh, I don't know, headphone design, right? Um, yeah, we made a cushion this year. <laughs> exactly. And I love that the, all of those things are there and are valid parts of HCI, right? Like, I don't know of another discipline. Like, you know, you can go to the information design people, you can go to the you know, the ACM has whatever it is, 37 different conferences or something. Um, and there's some great work going on in all of them. I've been really impressed by people I've talked to in the supercomputing community. Um, I've been really impressed by the stuff I've seen come out, coming out of information retrieval. Um, and yet the sheer breadth and openness to, I mean, it's this very ethnomethodological thing. We don't assume that we know what knowledge is, right? Um, what a bold statement for a community to make. And I think we run into problems with this. There's papers where you're like, I don't know that I think this should, paper should have been accepted. Um, you know, uh, there are sort of specific things you can point to like, well, okay, does this one count? Should it count? But I think as a community, wow, are we erring on the right side, right? We're erring on the side of in inclusivity and, 
and and being open to new disciplines and new ways of creating knowledge. Um, and wow, is that's where I want to be, right? Yeah, definitely. That's uh, those. Some of those were exactly my feelings when I first started in this line of work. Uh, and nowadays, I I kind of uh, have this like mental model of organizations as platforms in a way. So corporations, companies are platforms for individuals to uh, create certain kinds of things. So as a as a scientist inside of a corporation, you contribute to the creation of certain products, certain uh, phenomena. Uh, universities are a great platform for certain other kinds of things, uh, but for example, uh, th- they are not interchangeable. You know, so if you want to implement things, if you want to build products, if you want to put things out in the world for people to be able to buy and to uh, use and be supported and get uh, after-sales support and things, like you're not gonna, you're, it's gonna be very difficult to accomplish that kind of thing inside of a university. And conversely, I would imagine uh, that science inside of a corporation has its own difficulties. So what what kind of is like the uh, relationship, I guess, of a of a staff scientist with a corporation is it some kind of uh, sponsorship where you get to do whatever science you like and they sort of uh, make sure you stay alive, or are you always obliged to show uh, some kind of connection between your work and uh, like the operational goals of the company? Nearly always the latter, right? You want to be able to show why the work you're doing is important to the company. There's sort of these fantasies of these of these places in which people just do whatever they want. But you know, even if you sort of hark back to the glory days of like Bell Labs, right? And you know, like there is always an alignment because that's the way you get you get to have impact. That's the way you get to have the sponsorship, and that's where you continue to sort of be at the company, right? So I think there is often an alignment with that, and you want to figure out what's interesting, what's the work that you can do within that framework of contributing to whatever the company thinks is important, right? And as you get more senior, you have an opportunity to to shape those directions, right? Um, and partly, you end up making the space, particularly if you're doing sort of really new stuff, you may want to be thinking about, okay, um, the company does not do this thing right now, but here's why this is a logical thing to do, right? This is because this is sort of one step to the, you know, the next step from whatever we're doing. Is, the, is this direction that I'm exploring, right? So it's not always just the tactical, this is what we're doing, let's do it better. Um, although that can be valuable because it gets you a sort of moral standing, right? Like, like it, people like, ah, we were interested in this thing. Look how this person managed to do this work, which was really useful because it got us to sort of our goal. That means I'll listen when they're doing sort of the slightly longer term work. When you're thinking about, particularly sort of on the lab as a sort of unit of interaction, but the researcher as well, I mean, there's a sort of fractal nature here. You want to think about the mix that you do between the immediate tactical stuff like build the thing and then the longer term, more strategic work in which you're thinking about how you build towards the next future um, and how you're contributing to those sort of longer term visions within the company. But it's always a balancing act. It's always a balancing act. Since we're like drilling down into various uh, various aspects of our work now, I want to ask you something which I will... Uh, kind of frame in the context of science, but we can actually generalize to like all kinds of endeavors. And I want to ask you this because you are a, a couple of steps ahead of me in a similar kind of career track, I guess. So uh, you seem to be adept at, at doing your work. You're adept at publishing research. I've uh, enjoyed reading your your papers. You seem to be doing very quality work. And in my experience, this level of like 
quality and quantity at the same time is very challenging. So I, I, I kind of also have published uh, some of the, the similar kinds of research. And uh, I would say that some of it, like some of the parts that are like good, especially uh, have cost me. So I've paid for some of my successes with uh, arguments with colleagues sometimes with uh, breaking my habits of physical exercise and losing some fitness. And uh, I've even had once I've had a relationship come to an end because I'm so, you know, absorbed in my work during certain times, uh, which kind of coincides with the Kai deadline around September, I guess. Uh, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is uh, my my strategy for what you might call success uh, in, in work is radical deprioritization of everything else, which I'm fortunate to be able to do sometimes, but it's not a great strategy. I can't recommend this to my students and so on. You know, everyone has uh, their own priorities in, in their life. Uh, so I'm curious if you have found uh, through your career, any strategies or frameworks or even competences for achieving excellent results without compromising other dimensions of your life? I'm extremely lucky in that uh, my wife, Erin Pantea, is incredibly smart. And the two of us have got three great kids and have worked very carefully together to sort of balance those priorities, right? Um, I don't think we get it perfect all the time. Um, it is absolutely a topic of ongoing discussion. Um, and, and, you know, there's times it goes better than others, right? It's always hard. Um, one of the things I love about the pandemic, actually, and this is sort of maybe selfish, but, but I've actually, my physical health has got better, right? Because of some of the ways they changed the swimming around here. Um, I've been able to swim about three times a week. And it turns out that makes all the difference in the world, right? And before that, I, when I was doing well, I was able to bike to work. And again, that was like, an, you know, because if I could have a 45-minute bike ride, like, great, I actually get some exercise that way. Um, I've never really been very good at the sort of going to the gym thing. It's sort of somehow not, not quite my style. Um, but uh, it really does feel like it's an ongoing topic of discussion and engagement at, at all times is how you do that balance thing. So that's the first thing. The second that I would say is like, I have been incredibly blessed to have very, very good collaborators, oh, like yeah. amazing, right? And in particular, being able to bring in superb interns, right, who, uh, you know, work for a summer, sometimes two summers, um, and are they end up doing so much of the ways. I feel like as I get more senior, like the percentage of the paper that I write goes down, right? Like, like, you know, I'm no longer writing most of the paper or 50% of the paper, even if I'm collaborating with one other person. They're writing a lot more than me. But I believe, and I want to believe, that I'm, uh, that I'm contributing by helping, um, uh, you know, you, sh you, sh you frame the whole thing. You frame the, the research effort. You're like, look, this is the thing we're going to go and do. I'm going to do this. Um, yeah. But they absolutely do the vast majority of the work. And I think about uh, the people that I've had the pleasure of collaborating with uh, over the last couple of years, you know, Julia Cambray at CMU, Jessica Conlago is also at CMU, um, uh, Alex Williams, who's just taken on a professor position uh, at Tennessee. Um, these people, these, these interns have been just superb in the ways that they've done great work and enabled me to do this. 
and also the colleagues that I've been working with, right? People like Janice Sai, who was at Microsoft before she worked at um, Mozilla with me and is now at um, Google. Yeah, she went to Google. Um, uh, there's been a great list of superb people. So, um, so much of it is like surround yourself with awesome people, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I can second that for sure. And 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 that makes all the difference in the world is right. Like trying to have those sort of find those opportunities, right? And find those opportunities to work with interesting people, and figure out how you can turn the work you were going to do anyway into an interesting paper, right? How do you design your study from the beginning? I mean, for, for, you know, for in academia, you're often not doing studies that are not going to turn into papers, right? Um, in industry, it's sort of the opposite problem, right? For the Firefox voice work that we did, and I suppose I'm thinking about this because uh, Julia presented about it on Sunday and Monday um, at the Kai conference, we did something like 50 different discrete studies, and you just can't put 50 studies in a, in a paper, so you talk about four of them. Um, and then there's all these other things that we like, well, we did a study on that, right? And, you know, we, maybe we interviewed people, maybe we looked at the log data, maybe we did, um, a handful of those, um, and many of them just never get written up and you're just like, mm, okay, that's how it is. Right. So constant discussion, constant trying to figure out your balances. Um, one article actually you might like on this, um, there's a super article about swimming. Um, give me one second. I'll see if I can find it for you because I think it might talk to you. Okay. Um, Interesting. Um, it's about Olympic swimming All or right. Olympic swimmers. Um, and uh, the mundanity of excellence, an ethnographic report on stratification and Olympic swimmers. Okay. Um, so it's an actual research article. Oh, it's a research article. I think he's a sociologist. Um, I actually honestly don't know. I think he's a sociologist, but the thing I think the, the thing that's interesting about this paper and the way that I read it, and by the way, I sent it to, um, I'm on the uh, PhD committee for someone at uh, Australian national university. Um, and I sent it to her the other day and she had a very different read on it and sure. Right. But the way that I think it is interesting is it talks about different swimmers, right? There are, and there are different levels of, you know, there's sort of, local meets and then there might be national there might be state meets and then there's national meets and then there's um olympic meets right and these are sort of different levels in the hierarchy of swimming but the point that the that um daniel shambliss is the is the author the point that daniel makes is that it's it's not just that you practice more right like let's say that i'm swimming at the you know the junior level and i want to go up to the eventually be the olympic level and you go and interview the, the and let's say someone who's trying to compete at say nationals they swim 4 hours a day or 3 hours a day or whatever the number is right it's not that if you go to the olympics they're swimming 8 hours a day right it's not just sheer increase in quantity but it's an increase in 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 quality of how they're doing it right if you look at how someone's, and his example is that if you look at how someone swims breaststroke, um, uh, who's just an amateur, like someone like me who swims breaststroke very, very badly, right? Um, and you look at an Olympic swimmer, it's almost like they're doing completely different strokes, right? And it, that's the idea that it's not about the, uh, it's not about the quantity, but rather about the quality. And I think the reason this applies to um, HCI work is like, well, okay, you can think about yourself as a researcher. How do I do really quality work, right? How can I think about increasing? Because you can't publish more, 
right? Like, like there's a limit on how many papers anyone can publish in a year, right? So what does it mean to think about, okay, can I level up in, in the quality of the work that I'm doing? Um, can I publish less better things, right? Um, different universities are getting better and worse at thinking about this stuff. Like, um, you know, the tendency that some universities had to sort of basically just look at, you know, the length of your CV and sort of be like, uh, hey, right? Um, I hope we're moving the hell beyond that because it's it's embarrassing and shitty, right? Like outright <laughs> shitty to do things like that. Um, and I hope we're moving beyond counting, you know, the raw number of like full Kai papers that your name is on as, as sort of a measure of success, right? Um, because again, it's a shitty way to measure humans and it's a shitty way to measure like, like excellence and creating knowledge in the world, right? I think, and I think it's tricky because what you, to, to pick two ends of a spectrum, one is you just hire the person with the most Kai papers you can get, right? The other system is you only hire people who went to the same universities that you did um, and look <laughs> like you, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think both of those are pretty bad places to be. So how do you articulate what it means to, to, to bring someone in? Um, you know, I, so I've read all of the work. Oh, I've not read all of the work. I've read a great <laughs> deal of work on things like, you know, debiasing hiring processes. Mm -hmm. And there are things that make a lot of sense, like um, figuring out your criteria in advance and making sure you're actually, you know, if your criteria is number of Kai papers and you're not going to count CSEW papers and you're not going to count like journal papers, then fine, do that. And, but like make sure that's explicit and then you fill it out for everybody, right? Um, asking the same questions. And yet, at the same time, when I'm looking to hire people, I am looking for a level of enthusiasm and engagement and uh, an excellence in some domain, right? And that gets very, it's much more arbitrary, right? And how do you define that? And how do you say, well, okay, um, you know, this is the, you know, this person, I don't know, trains police dogs, right? Um, I talked to someone once who, uh, I was interviewing for a different context, it doesn't matter, but she trained police dogs. She was a high school student. She got up every morning at 6.30 and she'd train dogs for an hour, um, police dogs, search and rescue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then she'd go off to school. And I was like, okay, that's that's a level of, I, I definitely didn't get up at 6.30 when I was in high school. I don't know about you, but that, that was not my style. And I'm like, great. You, yeah, if, if you can do that on a repeated basis, that suggests a level of enthusiasm. And, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that in this role people were looking for. So, I don't know. It's a difficult question, and I struggle with it actively all the time. Um, and I haven't figured out quite what the right thing is to do that. We've spoken quite uh, quite a good deal about uh, publishing. Is is it... Uh, do you, are you still going to publish in your new role? I hope so. Um, we'll see what that looks like. Um, the area that I'm in, you know, people do publish. Um, my colleague Bo, as mentioned, has a nature paper or two that has come out recently. Um, there is a tradition of publishing. And within the medical world, publishing stuff is seen as this sort of validation step. Ah, yeah, true. Um, so there's a context in which that, that works. I'm hoping to do some work with some people on outside as well. I've been doing some work with Katie Pine at uh, Arizona State University, who does great work. And I would love to work with some of her team on this. And I'm trying to work on ways to make that happen. Um, and I think if we can figure out the right thing to publish within the, 
you know, what's the kind of paper we, we, we published that would be super fascinating. Um, we are seeing more and more, there was a whole workshop on uh, AI and healthcare work uh, at Kai this year. There's more work in that sort of domain. So figuring out what's like a, what's a, like what's a slice of it that we can take, right? I mean, I think this is one of the things that junior scholars often struggle with because, you know, you do the research and it's this big, hairy, messy ball, right? That's all over the place. And how do you represent that ball? And partly it's sort of freeing yourself up to say, I'm going to write a paper and it's one slice through this big, messy ball, right? And I'm going to really describe this one slice and what that looks like. Um, and it's not going to show all the things. There's going to be bits of the big, messy ball that's completely missed by this, right? Um, and that's okay because I'm going to authentically and accurately and truthfully tell that one slice. But I'm going to recognize that there's going to be bits that I've never seen. And I think when I was a grad student, I struggled with this. I'm like, well, but, you know, we didn't quite do it this way. We didn't look at this paper, then this paper, then this paper, and then this paper and do this this thing. It was, you know, yes. we sort of went back and forth. And you're like, it's okay. Like, I mean, like you were saying earlier, it's a rhetorical form, right? Like it's a, it's like a, it's like a haiku, right? You have to write it this way. Yeah. And, you know, even if you sometimes have to sort of like, like make it fit the 17 syllables kind of thing, that's okay. I like to call that scoping. And I kind of consider that a superpower. Like I haven't developed it into superpower levels yet, but to, to be able to decide what not to say in any given form, in a presentation, in a paper, in even like in this conversation, since we're recording it, it's kind of a, uh, it's a very powerful skill to have. Uh, I have a few questions that I like to ask everyone. I, I want to ask those to you, but I do have one last question before I get to that, which is, uh, so I'm going to ask this in two ways because I don't know your present situation with regard to this question. So uh, A, how do you convince people uh, other people at the company, decision makers that uh, publishing research and going to academic conferences and, and doing science and so on is uh, worthwhile and worth spending resources. B, if they are already convinced and you don't have to do this, what is their uh, mental model of the value that these activities create for the company? Sure. It's a good question. Um... I mean, when I was at Mozilla and I was actually actively giving out money, I think it was an even harder question to answer, right? Like, how do you actually you know, really show this value? Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of reason there's a lot of reasons and a lot of complexity um, around this. For the actual publishing, there is a validation of the work that we're doing, right? It says like this is actually like you know ah I see this makes sense, right? Um, and that can be sometimes a valuable part of of what goes on. There is a the going to you know being able to hire people, being able to bring in top talent. Um, uh, I saw an interview with Bill Gates maybe 15 years ago, and someone said, "Who's Microsoft's top competitor?" Right, expecting them to say, I don't, "Whoever it was back then, Apple or Oracle or something." Um, and he said, "Arthur Anderson." And they're like, "What?" And they're a consulting company. They've since changed their name, whatever. He's like, we're trying to hire the smartest people in the world, right? And uh, so those are the people that we're competing with, right? Because the people are what makes up a company. And being able to go to a conference and say, ah, um, you know, we published a paper, like the number of people I've brought into companies because I met them through Kai, I mean, the number of jobs I got through meeting people at Kai and things like that. 
are is is really significant, right? And so that idea that there is a recruitment value in that, both in terms of meeting people, but also in terms of the visibility from, huh, look at this place. This is a place that does quality research, and they publish at Kai. Um, you know, it can be sort of a, a one of the pieces of advice that I give people when like to figure out if they want to join a company. Um, go and look at the Kai proceedings, right? Um, Go and look at the papers and see who's doing the interesting work. And you're like, oh, that person's working on that. Great. I'll ping them because clearly they they published a paper at Kai on this. That's the sort of thing I might do. And that idea that it gives you an insight into where those external people are and what interesting internships or positions might be available is, I think, a really key thing. Um, I would add one more to this. And this sort of you used the word superpower earlier, which I loved. Um, having access to the world of research is itself a superpower, right? Being able to go and someone says, um, if only we knew something about why people do shopping. And you're like, ha, all right, let me go in and you know, and you go and you get like the Danny Miller books off the, off, off the shelf and you say, well, this is what Danny Miller wrote. And he was talking about a supermarket in Islington in London in 1982, but this is why it's relevant to what we're doing right now. And someone says, well, if only we had a way to measure um, uh, how much our, what our customers really think about us. And you're like, oh, great, let me go and find that work on doing that. So that idea that it gives you, uh, lets you know what questions you need to ask, right? And so, again, that engagement with that. So one of the things I've done this week already is to go and be like, here's five papers from Kai that I went to different Slack channels around the company and said, look, here's this one for this thing that's relevant to depression. Here's this one that's relevant for this thing to relevant to diabetes. Um, here this, here's this one that's thinking about how do you organize a program around an AI-driven product, right? So this idea that you can sort of take this and partly you, this role as a scientist, to go back to your first question, is to bring this stuff into the company and, and make it visible. And thereby people go, oh, this Kai thing is really good. And one of the things I would often do is I would say, uh, yeah, you can go and attend this conference, but you need to write a report. You need to tell us what we should care about. Yeah, and uh, for our audience uh, members who might not be familiar with Kai, this is uh, the long name for Kai is the uh, Conference on Human Factors in Computing. And it is the research conference and also a research publication. So every year it happens once a year and uh, they publish uh, what they call the proceedings, which is a collection of all of the papers that have been presented at this conference. And it is the uh, research conference with the largest readership, the largest attendance, the uh, largest, uh, I guess, endowment because of sponsors like Facebook and Microsoft and and, and uh, Alibaba and, and corporations like this. So it's a, it's a big deal in the world of uh, human-computer interaction and interaction design scholarship. Uh, and on that note, speaking of design, I would like to get to the, the, I guess, the standard questions. In one sentence, what does the word design mean to you? So the first thing that came to mind is like understanding people and building them things, like building them the things they need. And then, of course, I suddenly went into like, well, that's not what it is at all, but it'll do for now, right? <laughs> yes. It, it agrees with my definition. I like to say that it's creating for people uh, because then I like to say that, okay, engineering is creating for machines. And then I like to say that art is creating for yourself. So, which are like very simplistic ways of uh, defining things, but it's work when-, when I, I, It sounds like a way to have fights with engineers and artists to me. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it works when I say them to my students in class or when I'm giving presentations. But I, recently, I actually said this, giving a presentation to 100 engineers. And uh, it, it, I, I could feel that they, they didn't like it. <laughs> uh, what are some places and tools that you spend most of your time with? And this includes software. Slack and email, right? Um, uh, I spend, I do spend time on Facebook, right? Like I don't love Facebook, uh, but it, it is a great source of, of community. Um, that being said, you know, I, I have a fountain pen that I like. It's really clever because it's retractable, um, and you know, and and I, I I take a lot of paper notes as well. Um, Evernote um, is a useful tool. Um, mm. That's old school. Notion is very fashionable these days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, partly these things are very sticky, right? Like I, yeah. I go back and I have Evernotes going back for, I don't know, five or six years, maybe more. Um, uh, def I mean, I don't think I was consistently using it, but having something, uh, having something to put places is really valuable. I mean, and I try and do like more serious notes in Evernote, and then this stuff is sort of scribbles. Uh, sketches, things like that as I'm going along. I, I guess you do spend a considerable amount of time doing work, uh, perhaps the most amount of time out of all of the possible activities that you do. What would be the second thing that you spend most of your time on? Well, sleeping is a, you know, <laughs> a big fan of that. Um, but I mean, it, the answer is like, like if I'm not spending time on work, I'm, and, and I'm going to include sort of the, you know, larger HCI community work as part of that. Um, it's spending time with my kids, right? Like I, um, you know, I read my, now we're down to reading just my son, a bedtime story every night. I was reading all three of them bedtime stories for a while. Um, it'll start up again cause we're about to do the, the last book of Harry Potter. We've read all six of them so far. Uh, and then I had to go back and read the first three one more time for the little one for, for Jake. Um, so, uh, I'm looking, <laughs> I'm slightly looking forward to being, <laughs> Done with the last one, right? But uh, how how old are they? I have two nine-year-olds and a six-year-old. Sounds like a fun place to be. Your house. <laughs> it is. It is a. It is very fun. It's, <laughs> it's not easy, but it's very fun. So before we conclude, where can we find you on the internet, or you, do you wish to be found at all? Sure. I mean, you know, I'm Joe Fish on all the places. Basically, I'm JoeFish.com. Joe Fish on Twitter. Joe Fish on LinkedIn, Joe Fish on Facebook. <laughs> I think I might be Joe Fish 22 on Reddit, I think, because I uh, someone had got there before me. Damn it. Oh, wow. Uh, I uh, only recently got started on Reddit. I'll, I'll make sure to... I don't even know if you can follow people there. I will I will try to keep tabs on you. <laughs> uh, I, like, I'm starting to... You know, there is a, that, 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 a nascent HCI community there, but it's not... Um, I don't know, despite the efforts of me and one or two other people, like we haven't quite got the the energy I'd like, but maybe one of these days, you know. There is a uh, design thinking community which appears to be uh, active on Reddit. Uh, which I'll is check it out. Just I'll my ve out. very small set of observations based on posting a few of this uh, the, the design discipline episodes. But thank you so much for, for this conversation. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really hope to run into you again one of these days and have other conversations and perhaps uh, even record some of them again. I hope so. That'd be lovely. I look forward to it. And thank you for having me.